Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Alpha Bunga Bunga is Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, both based in the UK, and myself, Alex Hochuli, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So in this episode, we're discussing culturally conservative critics of capitalism. Now, I'm going to say a few words before we go to the interview to unpack this phrase and lay out a few key features of this debate. So, as we know, capitalism's advance has led to the commodification of ever greater areas of social life. Under neoliberalism, fragmentary tendencies have accelerated. So you've got the breaking up of civic institutions, of communities, and of families. It all leaves an increasingly atomized society. At the same time, especially since the 1960s, the left's pushed in more or less the same direction. It sought to break up traditional arrangements, advancing a social liberalism that sought to liberate people from religion, from the nation, traditional gender roles, and so on. You'll have noticed, though, in recent years that this tendency has become more extreme, even questioning the very categories through which we understand the world, such as in the fraught debate over transgenderism or adopting increasingly essentialist notions of race, such as in the debates over white privilege. This goes by various names. You could see it as cultural liberalism, set against an older social liberalism. Others call it radical liberalism, or hyperliberalism, or even woke neoliberalism. Now though, some changes are also happening on the right. That old Reaganite alliance of social conservatives on the one hand, and economic liberals or neoliberals on the other hand, is breaking up. A culturally conservative wing is becoming much more forthright in its criticisms of the market. And it criticizes the market for the way that it corrodes social bonds. These so-called national conservatives or post-liberals invert the old libertarian dictum. So instead of socially liberal, fiscally conservative, now you get socially conservative, fiscally liberal. By the way, liberal here in the sense of wanting a greater role for the state in the economy. On the left, there have been critics who've raised the alarm about the sort of damages wrought by the combined effects of the market on the one hand and cultural liberalism on the other. People like Christopher Lash or Daniel Bell, uh, both of whom get discussed in this episode. But for the most part, their warnings went unheeded. Now though, we may be seeing some strands on the left that increasingly see themselves as culturally conservative, you know, in quotation marks. So I guess you could see the left as being split between a dominant wing, which wants to be moral educators to the masses, you know, don't be transphobic, try polyamory and so on and just maybe a more workerist tendency uh, who are adopting what they see as the cultural conservatism of the masses. All in all, it's a pretty confusing picture though, but there are some serious realignments underway that we need to try to understand. I should note that the interview and discussion you're about to hear with Anna Katchen was recorded back on the 12th of April. But if anything, the global protests in response to the police killing of George Floyd only highlight the tensions and the contradictions that were discussed in this episode. Just before we go to the interview, there's a list of readings in the show notes that may be helpful, not least because we make reference to many of them in the episode. These are all either about culturally conservative critics of capitalism or are examples of them. All right, here's the interview. Today we have a guest, uh, Anna Katchen. Most of you will probably know her. Uh, she's uh, a podcaster, self-described podcaster with a, bit of, with a bit of embarrassment when she said that, but you know. We have to get over that. Uh, and a writer, uh, you'll know her from Twitter as well, and Red Scare podcast, of course. Hi, Anna. Hi, fellow podcasters. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's, it's great to have you. Uh, today we are talking about 
uh, critiques of woke neoliberalism, uh-huh. I guess. So to get this started, uh, you like to kind of, in, in both in Red Scare and the things that you tweet and the things that you write, Anna, uh, explore the political and cultural contradictions of contemporary liberalism. Um, what in that t- in that sort of critique that you're developing there? What do you think is the the kind of starting point for you? Is there like cultural or political crisis for you that's the most urgent one to investigate? Um, well, I think a lot of my critics have correctly identified me as a person who's not particularly politically involved or informed. Uh, I think I come to politics kind of uh, like Brad Easton Ellis, who's one of my intellectual heroes, uh, who sees it as a kind of uh, affective or aesthetic theater. I mean, like Roger Stone famously said that politics was show business for ugly people. And you see this like weird inversion taking place now where uh, not only is uh, not only has politics become a form of culture or entertainment, but the culture itself has been politicized for yeah. better or worse, I think for worse. And I think like, you know, the only way that people can access certain kind of grand cultural conversations or narratives is through politics. I think that's a really good way to put it. Uh, Culture has uh, assumed an ever larger role, I guess, in in our contemporary societies to the extent that a lot of things that we think are political are are often just culture wars uh, and the kind of return of politics in many cases that we've experienced over the past whatever decade uh, in many ways is uh are, are actually just kind of cultural polarizations like which camp do you sit in which aren't necessarily it's not really class politics it's not traditional ideological politics but it's a lot of dissensus and division based on real kind of cultural boundaries and the policing of those cultural boundaries so i think i mean what we're interested in doing obviously is trying to tease out what the real politics are from all this cultural uh crap that goes on um and i'm going to go to phil because phil has a has an interesting list of of what he sees as some contemporary maybe socially conservative critics of uh, of contemporary capitalism. So I suppose to map out some of what's happening on the right um, to parallel the new um, uh, kind of conservative cultural critics on the left, there's a great article in The New Statesman on the new intellectuals of the American right. And some of this, um, you know, some of this has filtered, has filtered um, over here in the UK, but some of it is very kind of strange and um, internal to America itself. A lot of it is, so some of the names, um, one thing or one point that's made in the, um, in this article is that the big names of the American intellectual right, um, Friedrich Hayek, John Locke, Milton Friedman, Ayn Rand, and Adam Smith, they're out. And the ideas of Carl Schmitt, James Bernan, uh, Michel Welbeck, the French novelist, and Christopher Lash, the American sociologist, are the ones that are in. And some of the authors on the American right that are associated with this shift are um, Patrick Deneen, um, who's written a book um, called the How Liberalism Failed, I think. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Why Liberalism Failed. He's a political scientist at the University of Notre Dame. But there's others as well, and not just kind of um, academics, but also obviously um, Rod Dreher, who's the senior editor of the American Conservative, and also um, Tucker Carlson, who's the Fox um, Fox News host, and um, apparently very close to Donald Trump, and has also been um, you know has been known for his criticisms of America's permanent wars, 
defending Bernie Sanders, um, uh, making the case for Medicare, and also um, bigging up some of Elizabeth Warren's policy proposals. So um, very much a kind of time of flux. And that in so just interesting, I suppose, to kind of um, draw attention to the fact that the right is also um, the political right is also reconfiguring itself with showing more um, more social conservatism or cultural conservatism and also more um, skepticism towards the market precisely on gra- on the grounds that it's been um, it's kind of corrosive of community and nationhood and that these are values that the right uh, needs to return to now that's a really good list and actually we're going to provide those names in the in the show notes for listeners who want to chase them up um, but yeah it's not just on the right where you have people who would traditionally you'd assume as conservatives would be pro free market are now becoming critics of the market as well as critics of uh, of kind of cultural like radical liberalism or or whatever uh, kind of cultural aspects in in liberalism um, but you also get this on the left right um, and Phil I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit more but you're getting certain critics on the left who um who are yeah. rejecting a lot of yeah cultural uh, liberalism are we talking about angela nagel we are indeed yeah <laughs> okay. um and friend of the podcast angela friend yeah of the podcast absolutely and um you know she in some ways i mean she's pioneered you know i mean she pioneered ideas which i think are gradually kind of um um you know um creeping in um, and becoming more kind of talked about and so on and earned such a tremendous amount of bitterness and hatred um, from the left a few years ago for even daring to say a few of the things that she did. And, uh, you know, she was very brave and um, took a lot of flack for it. Um, But Angela Nagel would obviously be the standout figure. But then... um, uh, there's also the blue labor phenomenon in um, in the UK, which is centered around a number of people, but most uh, most notably Maurice Glassman, who's um, a Jewish member of the House of Lords. He was appointed by the former Labour leader Ed Miliband, and he's the um, kind of intellectual um, core of the blue labor movement who are trying to restore an old division of the British left, which is more socially and culturally conservative um, and economically left wing. And they're trying to forge a new vision which combines those values of being um, collective, um, welfareist, communal, um, uh, in defense of nationhood, patriotic, as well as supporting um, state intervention in the economy and industrial policy, tariffs and anti being opposed to globalization and the free market so I'd, I'd say in the in the british context and you mentioned blue labor there phil and anna it'd be interesting to hear your take on on i guess this this question that we we started with which is where does the where does the impulse for this critique come from and i think with the case of, of blue labor in particular you can see it's a communitarian one above all i'd say so it's a, it's it's starting from a, a felt loss of community and a question of how do you reconstruct mm-hmm. community? How do you how do you kind of all those things that have been undermined by the the acid bath of the market in the last forty years? How do you start to rebuild those things? So yeah, I think that's that in the British well, context, that's quite clear. So I I am pretty unfamiliar with the British context, but I I, I can imagine there are some pretty obvious parallels. Um, I'm really glad you guys brought up the new statesman piece. You guys, you kind of took the wind out of my wings because I was going to bring it up. I have the paragraph right here. Um, I was reading it, came out on a- April 7th, and I like nearly spit out my coffee because, you know, here's an article talking about uh, Michelle Welbeck, Christopher Lash, among others. Um, those are 
my reference points that I've encountered, again, in the work of people like Angela Nagel, um, Russ Doubt, Doubt That, Doubt That. I never know how to pronounce his name, but we had no him on the show. No idea I think if it, that. we, we were hoping that. you were going to tell us how to pronounce his name. If it's Doubt That, that would be too... I, that's what I said. That's but too perfect. The, uh, um, but, um, you know, in the piece, they attribute a lot of the stuff to the rise and influence of the trad cats. And they also, there's um, a little bit on there um, about uh, Julius Krein, who's the editor of American Affairs, with whom I've had a few conversations about Welbeck and Lash. Um, and he's, he talks about how the real class war is not between um, the working class and the elites, but between the managers and the billionaires, which as I understand it was also kind of Piketty's line. Um, but it's also a very Lashian point um, that he makes in Revolt of the Elites. The meritocracy is so insidious because and hard to displace because these are people who believe that their intelligence alone and not, say, an ancestral birthright or a trust fund is what explains their kind of ascendancy superiority. Um, and and they're, these are people who, according to Lash, retain all of the vices of the aristocracy with none of the virtues. And people who see themselves, for example, as global citizens, but ha- who have no use for concepts like community or obligation or anything of that sort. Mm. Um, and they feel kind of entitled to the cultural and economic spoils of the world, of the global economy, but they're uninclined to invest in anything. Um, except for their own kind of local, whatever yeah. I think he mentions yeah. like private schools, uh, local organizations. Um, and he talks about how this is essentially a parody of democracy. And it's strange because you, you know, you take a journal like American Affairs, which is legitimately interesting, um, not only because of the obvious quality and variety of its roster, its writing, um, or for its aesthetic, which is like a return to this kind of dignified masculine vibe. Um, but most of all, because it has a strange, it's strange position. It, American Affairs is not exactly a leftist journal in the way that like Jacobin or Current Affairs are, uh, but it's not a right wing journal either. So, so, so maybe just, sorry, just to, to bring it back a little bit. That point about managers versus billionaires and that kind of what's the what's the split? Um, we had a, an episode a, a couple of months ago about um, Christophe Guilly who's an American, a French sociologist who's written this book, Twilight of the Elites. And he's extremely cutting about what he calls the new, the new bourgeoisie. They're kind of, they have this doctrine of openness and there's, they have all kinds of um, forms of control over the city and over politics. Um, And he's extremely, (laughs) extremely uh, cutting on their, I guess their ethical and their kind of, um, moral approach to politics but i guess the, the question is what what is it a kind of response to this setup or this kind of division well, so who 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 are these kind of more cultural critics speaking on behalf of i well, guess i mean here i think that here's the thing it's like uh crying julius crying is absolutely right that the kind of real cultural war on some levels between managers and billionaires um i really love this quote that a friend of mine had that i've sort of adapted and adopted that that, that the real kind of uh culture war is between um uh people who can tolerate moral ambiguity and those who demand epistemological certainty um uh, but on some level, you can frame this in another way altogether and say that 
the war is no longer between left and right. I mean, you have figures like Angela Nagel and Tucker Carlson that defy the idea of strict binaries. I reject the hypothesis to quote Quentin Tarantino that there is a left and a right anymore. Um, So I think what we're talking about, the real war is between institutional and extra institutional players yeah, which would be the kind of populist conception right of right. kind of insiders versus outsiders i mean i joked i think there's a different uh, another kind of cultural axis which is uh what i mean i kind of tweeted this jokingly the other day but i kind of mean it that politics today is is a struggle between on the one hand the professional managerial class and the petite bourgeoisie on the other so you have people who uh, work in ngos or in offices or whatever and who are maybe more culturally liberal and you have the petite bourgeoisie you know small business owners especially out in the provinces who are more culturally conservative and that is those two faces of the middle class are the kind of is one of the main polarizations that we have today. Meanwhile, the super rich are kind of fine with it. They might take sides in that struggle or they might not. And largely speaking, the working class is not involved, not mobilized, not involved right. in politics. So not not to be so I, not to be crude, but is 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 then that the reason why these some of these debates take a cultural form because essentially the objective material interests of those two groups are not that are not that different. Yeah, um, they're not that disparate, yeah. So instead instead there are arguments on questions of taste, questions of um, ethics, and maybe that's why some of the, the debates get so so nasty so quickly because the relatively small difference is being argued over. Yeah, and we're talking about um, the kind of professional managerial kind of global elite urban class that has a sneering contempt for uh, what it perceives to be the working class, but is really probably more accurately the petite bourgeoisie. Um, And I mean, look, you had this with Corbyn, uh, the kind of traditional causes of the left and the right have essentially flipped. Um, And I think in the UK, what you saw was was Labour had somehow done this total about face and become the party of the educated urban elites, which was kind of understandably alienating to the rural and working classes. And, you know, you have this very... A difficult predicament where I think, you know, I've said this before and gotten much flack for it. I believe I said it in a spiked interview that uh, was quite uh, poorly received. But um, I think that the PMC element of society is in denial about its real kind of feelings, uh, its deep seated disgust and contempt for people for, for the bourgeoisie of the provinces and mm. the working class mm. you, i think you can you can definitely you can see that in some of the in the british context it's, it's particularly clear but i guess if that's some of the, the 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 landscape in in general what do we think are some of the more i guess interesting points that are made or lines of critique that are developed i mean we mentioned some of these these thinkers um and i'm I would be surprised if we were prepared to endorse everything that all of them had said. But that's what strikes me is that so much of um, so much of it seems to be um, a lash revival, rather than um, having um, rather than having a kind of uh, dis- you know I don't know kind of form uh, forming or crafting something which um, is fully of the moment. It's more living through or um, retrospectively seeing the vindication of what Lash predicted in Twilight of the Elites, the 
um, withdrawal of the elite kind of geographically, politically, socially, economically, as they extricate themselves from all the kind of um, common institutions of the nation and allowed all of those common institutions to degrade. And so... I mean, you know, notwithstanding the thinkers that we've mentioned um, earlier um, on the American right, I'm not sure that there is as much, um, that there is, a lot of it seems to me to be kind of froth on the top of um, thinkers who come from the past. And Patrick Deneen's book, which um, I've read, um, Why Liberalism Failed, um, is well written, but I mean, it's not, it doesn't have much, you know, I mean, if that's the best that the American right can come up with at the moment, then, you know, they're in real trouble. Because it really, it's kind of, you know, it's this meandering complaint, a lot of it about, um, uh, you know, the groundwater is polluted, our children are spending all their time on mobile phones, uh, and political liberty is being eroded. Um, it mixes together the most kind of bizarre, um, you know, uh, complaining, pissing and moaning about um, cultural and social decline with genuine, substantive political um, uh, kind of uh, concerns about the structure of the American state, um, the relationship of the state to its citizens and so on. And so anyway, I mean, it's only to say that I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of what's happening seems to me to be um, a rash revival rather than something which is substantive and really belongs to us um, and can really kind of this, that this generation of thinkers and commentators can claim. Um, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's actually really stunning. And it almost has, I don't want to say it's, it has a nefarious cast, but there is something kind of sinister and uncanny about the revival of Lash. Um, I think the thing is that Lash has been so thoroughly forgotten. So now you see guys like David Brooks and Ross Duhat rehabilitating him under our noses in this very quiet, subtle way. Um, so for example, a couple of months ago, uh, if any of us can remember that far back, uh, David Brooks had a, a long read in the Atlantic called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake, um, in which he describes the nuclear family as a relatively short-lived phase of human civilization and outlines the cultural and economic factors leading to its decline. Um, now, Brooks, of course, is no leftist or antinatalist. He's not actually advocating for the decline of the nuclear family, but for the return of greater intergenerational connectivity. Um he talks about how economic trends have led to this revival of the extended family because children are moving in with their parents and seniors are moving back with their children. Um, but of course, he has to admit in this somewhat kind of sad and backhanded way that this is due not to people voluntarily seeking out uh, connectivity or family, but because of the fact that on the whole, people are more economically precarious and unstable. Um what struck me about that piece at the time was the totally Lashian tone. Um, you know, he, he literally says <clears throat> in, in the beginning, he says he uses the phrase a moral haven in a heartless world. Wow. There you go. Which, <laughs> yeah. I guess, which, but you know, that's a, a Lash book. So I guess the question Absolutely, is what, what, yeah. what actually do we mean by Lashian? Are we just talking about the culture of narcissism here? Is it is it a is it a general kind of moral critique? What's the well, what do we, yeah go on sorry. I, I mean I think Lash like all great critics was basically expert, uh, unprecedented at diagnosing the reality, but could offer really no meaningful way out. I mean you see the problem you see this problem um, 
yeah with yeah. social critics left and right i mean you we talked briefly about uh, my interview with steve bannon steve bannon suffers in some sense from the same problem he's fantastic at diagnosing the problems that are uh, kind of the the that which ails our society but i don't think that he has a particularly appealing or productive way out of it i guess that's what that's what precisely makes them conservative right that they can only uh, testify to a sense of loss, very real loss, I, I would say, but that there's no, it's not really a productive critique in the sense of actually providing a way out or identifying an agent or a, an idea or a path to, to actually resolving this sort of alienation, right? Because it's an alienation, it's a loss of uh, communal bonds or intergenerational uh, living or whatever else it might be, right? Right, so, but yeah, you know, on that's, the whole the kind of socially conservative at the very least, if not politically conservative critique is uh, on some level more redeeming than the leftist critique, uh, which is, you know, delusional about itself and about the state of the world. I mean, you know, you have these kind of like, uh, now I think these culture wars are pretty much defunct, but we had, you know, we have a puff piece every six months about polyamory right that gets that pisses off the, <laughs> you know yeah. one half of the population and galvanizes the other half um we had that that you know brief blip about antinatalism and how maybe you shouldn't have kids because you uh, are not entitled and you should be saving the environment and whatever mm. um and all of these uh you know lash perfect there's a great quote from um the culture of narcissism, if you don't mind, I'll quote it. It's like my favorite lash quote of all time that I think really kind of uh, informs, inspires my thinking. Um, he talks about how many radicals still direct their indignation against the authoritarian family, repressive sexual morality, literary censorship, the work ethic, and other foundations of bourgeois order that have been weakened or destroyed by capitalism itself. Um, this is from 1979. I think he perfectly describes the modern left, which is mired in these nostalgic, culturally liberationist battles that have already been settled by the encroachment yeah. of neoliberalism uh, itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Absolutely. even worse, I'd say. I mean, I think um, so much of what's strange about the contemporary left is that in many ways they're the last readout of all of these conservative forms because they have to keep on recreating them in order to have something to um, rail against. And so the things that they supposedly seek to overthrow, which, you know, have been dissolved, were dissolved away a long time ago, um, they end up being their um, kind of inadvertently end up being their fiercest defenders because they keep on recreating them in order to um, in order to um, take them down. So they're kind yeah. of this imaginative recreation of these um, uh, kind of oppressive yeah. institutions well, that there's... don't actually exist at all, like patriarchy, you know, being mm. the most kind of obvious one. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's... Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I was just, just going to make a, a bit of a sideways point about, I think, the danger of a certain sort of social conservatism, which isn't as direct as what we're talking about here, but is a bit more vicarious. And what, basically what I mean by that is that you can have a you can have a defense of, of, a, of a kind of family unit or of something which is in the more or less recent past that you're trying to to destroy and you need to reconstruct it to, to destroy it. But I think in there's almost a bigger danger that you have a um, a sort of social conservatism driven by essentially an environmentalist impulse, which is saying, okay, th there are all these things that people want to do. There are all these freedoms which people want to live out. And in fact, the real danger is that if you were to do all of these things, there would be 
a much greater problem than the destruction of these forms but then but rather the destruction of the of the society in general so i think there's a kind of a danger of another sort of social conservatism which we haven't really talked about which is brought in kind of by the back door around saying okay what are the what are the real dangers around people i guess doing whatever they would like to do i'm I'm not sure i see what your point i mean this is like peter thiel's point a kind of his zero to one point that there's you know a horizontal growth which basically replicates uh the existing globalist model and and expands it to not developed countries um and then yields a kind of almost neo-malthusian outcome and then there's the uh vertical model of growth um where we go from zero to one we create a new technology that um it is truly kind of uh innovative and 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 it represents a positive monopoly and allows us to kind of grow exponentially without overburdening our existing resources i'm not entirely convinced but i mean he does make this point and, and a lot of people um around kind of in that milieu the stagnationist milieu have also made this point it seems to me that that is a product itself of capitalist stagnation rather than uh, any particular capitalist dynamism. And I think actually that might, I hadn't really thought about it in these terms, but that might also provide a little bit of a key into understanding what's going on today because there's all the, a lot of the reaction against contemporary capitalism, especially at the kind of cultural level, is like, oh my God, things are spiraling out of control. Things are moving too fast. And it's weird because capitalism isn't growing very fast. It's pretty stagnant. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of technological innovation other than things to keep you busy on your phone. Right. Um, so so actually when people are, are kind of do this sort of degrowth sort of stuff, like we got to slow down, we got to do less, we got to, you know, kind of hunker down, small is beautiful, all this kind of thing, are actually extending capitalism's existing stagnant tendencies rather than reacting against this capitalism, which is going too fast. Or rather, the way in which it's going too fast is in, is in very specific areas. You know, it's, it's really about communications yeah. technology and I mean, nothing else. Yeah, we're talking about information and consumer technology, even technology itself. I mean, there's this myth of like innovation, disruption, progress, right? This like very liberal myth of progress that, that um, at, at the very least, technology sector it's growing and it's it's not i mean duha says this very eloquently in his book that actually technology technological advance has not been able to solve any big human problems like you know how to cure cancer or how to get off the planet right it's all in the um the the only kind of he points to like the kind of almost pathetically sublime experience of handling something as miraculous as your iPhone in your hand. But, you know, it seems like everything, that, that, that kind of like Lashian adage that, that we're kind of, we're busy rebelling against problems that have been solved for us by, by kind of the processes of advanced capitalism itself. I mean, all of it, you know, feels to me like a basically moral racket of people, uh, supposedly fighting these emancipatory battles but really rationalizing their material and spiritual immiseration after the fact um and uh you know it's really interesting because so you know back to david brooks in this essay he does eventually end up quoting lash 
but very, very much later on, um, he calls him an intellectual historian. He and he mentions he he quotes him as as noting in in the late 1970s that the American family didn't start coming apart in the 1960s. That it, in fact it had been coming apart for more than a hundred years. And he chooses this rather bland quote that could really be attributed to any social or cultural critic of that time, um, and isn't particularly representative of Lash. Um, as a writer and a critic and what i've seen kind of on a historiographic level is people smuggling lash in and kind of repackaging his insights as their own and i'm not i don't suspect any foul play necessarily but i think you know somebody like duha is does a very similar thing um you know he wrote this book the decadent society how we became victims of our own success um, which, you know, basically argues in the fashion of someone like Edmond de Goncourt that we are literally dying of civilization. So I guess if one of the key Lashian insights is that we're often addressing or attacking some of these problems that in already in one sense have already been been largely solved, two of the other thinkers that you I know that you you've mentioned or that you draw on quite often are um, Camille Pallier and Huelbeck as well, who who we mentioned earlier. I guess the question is what what do these two add in their different ways to what's missing in um, liberal maybe contemporary liberal thought because they're a bit i mean you, you could say they're a bit spicier than than lash in in some ways he's a bit more measured but i don't think uh Welbeck's particularly uh measured in his novels um i think i mean i think Welbeck and palia probably accomplish in different ways the the same thing um Welbeck sort of by example as a as a fiction writer and, and palia um explicitly as as a cultural critic um, or historian, cultural historian, um, which is that I think they're arguing for a very kind of commonsensical approach to cultural and social critique. And they're basically saying, I think, in a nutshell, like, look, liberalism fails on the level of culture because it has tried to, um, it, it's not exactly promoting transgression and taboo, it's normalizing it or naturalizing it which defeats the entire purpose of kind of a transgressive or, or taboo, um, like the, the entire idea of it, if that makes any sense. So it's about the failure of, of transgression to be transgressive. Yeah, because it's something that you can't, again, you cannot, you, it's something that can't be kind of normalized, right, within culture at large. It has to exist on some level, um, even if you're promoting it, as um, Welbeck does, but not quite. Um, or he does kind of through the lens of his characters and oftentimes his, um, you know, it's one of the problems that like Angela Nagel, for example, suffers from where, you know, uh, merely through description, she's guilty of endorsement sort of thing. So I think people yeah, collapse, yeah. conflate Welbeck, the the author, and uh, mm. his kind of bachelor, <laughs> comfortable comfortable bachelor bureaucrat protagonists, mm. which which are I think actually often quite similar across the novels. I mean, I do I do like his books, and I think I've read all of them or almost all of them. There they do have that 
kind of compelling repetitiveness. Um, but Alex, I think you had you had something on on Daniel Bell to bring another name into yeah. the, into the mix. Yeah, yeah, I think we have to throw Daniel Bell's name into the ring. I mean, Daniel Bell was a uh, critic writing around the same time as as Lash. In fact, probably earlier. Um, you know, Daniel Bell described himself as a socialist in economics, a, pol- a liberal in politics, and a conservative in culture. Um, and his uh, cultural contradictions of capitalism is really to the point here as well. I mean, he also makes the point that the kind of the liberals won and have to pretend that they're an oppositional culture when they no longer are. Um, so, I mean, he, he actually looks at how, and this is writing in 1972, how the sort of avant-garde and the, and, and those who saw themselves as maybe bohemian critics of, of the, you know, stiff upper lipped bourgeoisie, um, had actually gone beyond just defending their free creative spirit. Uh, attacking bourgeois society, but attacking civilization or repressive tolerance or some other agency that curtails freedom. Uh, and this sustains an adversary culture. So that's me, me quoting from him. Um, but he points out that the protagonists of the adversary culture, right, of the counterculture, as it was called in the, in the 60s and the 70s, um, despite their sincere and avowed subversive intentions, do substantially influence, if not dominate, the cultural establishments today, i.e., the outsiders have become the mainstream. So, you know, today there isn't any more outside from, from which to critique uh, the kind of cultural establishment or traditional uh, cultural mores because those have all been blown apart. Um, so, you know, Daniel Bell was making the point already in 1972 and in the same way that, you know, you can go back and read Lash and you feel like he's describing today. Um, and it was only the fact that actually those tendencies were already going on in the kind of mid-post-war period uh, and that they were early critics of it. Um you know, so he, he makes the point, the, the anti-bourgeois has won. So antinomian, antinomianism and anti-institutionalism rule, which is to Anna's point about, you know, whether you're kind of defending institutions or you're kind of outside them. And that is often um, one of the main cultural dividing lines or cleavages that you, that you find today. So, and just to connect it to one other point, there's, um, I forgot who makes the point, I think it was the Doubt That book, which is the, you know, how we're victims of our own success. Um, yeah. You know, that's just, that's just Daniel Bell repeating again, because he, he pointed out in the 60s that the counterculture stood against the old Protestant ethic that had built the United States, that had built capitalism, whatever, you can buy that argument or not. Um, but the point is that Bell already at that point saw that it had already gone, that old Protestant ethic had already been demolished, that there were only vestiges of it left, um, and that it's only and that it's mainly used by the counterculture today to moralize against. But it doesn't actually exist that, you know, tradition has been destroyed already by capitalism's progress itself. So I suppose, I mean, it's a question as to um, if we're agreed that, um, and it's interesting what you said, Anna, that the the way in which, particularly with res- respect to Brooks, the way in which they smuggle in Lash um, on the sly, as it were, or if they do bring him in explicitly, then it's not in fact to um, in order to um, draw attention to his greatest insights or his most quotable moments, which they repackage as their own. Um, and I'm sure you're right. Then a lot of it, I'm sure, is inadvertent more than um, you know, more than a kind of a conscious effort to downplay to downplay his influence. Um, but I suppose it uh, it raises the question as to why um, why I guess they and us are lacking in uh, sufficient intellectual originality and creativity of our own. Um, or whether there's anything new, or whether in fact that Lash and Hall, um, sorry, Lash and Bell, um, and others are sufficient to um, describe what's happening, or if there's things which escape their grasp. 
well, it, there's a, a lot that I can say on, on this question. Um, I think that, you know, um, it, it actually do hat goes the, comes the closest to, to answering this question inadvertently. Um, you know, if you, if you look at his book, he's talking about that, you know, in addition to economic stagnation, right? So the flatlining of growth in every sector, but technology, and like we said, within technology, uh, mostly information, consumer technology, um, he talks about how we're also witnessing um, cultural and institutional sclerosis. And this is beyond just like the point that someone like Mark Fisher made, right? The um, cultural forms of production, like music, art, movies are trapped in this hamster wheel like compressed increasingly compressed cycles of nostalgic revivalism um but it's interesting that just like lash um he introduces so lash you know right in 79 introduced his book the culture of narcissism with an essay from 1976 and the narcissist society um do debuts his book the decadent society um with an essay the age of decadence and it's almost like a one-to-one correspondence right but a little bit inverted um and again the spirit of the book if not the tone is totally Lashian, or I'm not familiar with David Bell, but I'm assuming he's plucking from there um, too. But again, he only cites him much like Brooks, only kind of casually or peripherally as just another one of my many sources, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I have no doubt um, that Duha, I, I don't think he's, you know, I don't suspect him of anything. I actually find him to be one of the few redeeming uh, kind of institutional columnists around today. Um, but he, I think in a way, consciously or not is positioning himself as our generation's Christopher Lash because he knows on some level that our memory is short our collective memory and I, I think what he's banking on is that the vast majority of people who are not familiar with Lash uh, will not make the connection um, whereas a small minority of people who are familiar will interpret it as a kind of homage um, you know which I do because I always like to to say you know you judge an artist by their peaks and not their valleys um, but the he makes a brilliant point that um what you have is not just the stagnation of cultural forms like music and movies but the stagnation of the intellectual discourse itself so in my mind that's the cultural historiographic meta narrative right um and you know what's interesting is that lash wrote the narcissist society in 1976 which is just three years after the date peter Thiel gives for the end of the growth era and the start of the stagnation era um which we know now is roughly coterminous with the spread of neoliberalism as the dominant ideological economic order um but but it's he's predicting so he's generating kind of a new form of discourse or critique because he's predicting all of this from like a post-war perspective um and it's it you know from a time when growth was still happening and the american dream was maybe like on its last legs but was still alive and kicking um and since then there, there's been virtually no improvement on, on anything he or i'm assuming daniel bell has said um which is why I've always encouraged young people um, who want to underst- understand their like present day moral fatigue and, and spiritual malaise to read him. 
But, you know, I wanted to ask Ross this on our episode and we ran out of time. Um, but, you know, what I want to know is, does he see himself as a symptom of the intellectual kind of meta narrative stagnation yeah. he's yeah. talking about? Mm. Yeah, good. I mean, it's it is exactly I think it's exactly the right question to put to um, to these um, to these new cultural commentators. And the other thing as well, I think, is that um I mean, Lash, you know, Lash drew on um, Lash drew on Marx and Freud, and he would never have been able to formulate culture of narcissism um, in particular without having um, Freudian categories and Freudian theory, right? In order to talk about how the psyche, you know, the kind of um, has been reorganized um, without those concepts. And I don't, you know, I suppose my my um, not worry, but my assumption is, or my thought would be. Um, that people like um, Ross Duhat and um, these others, David Brooks and so on, they don't have that theoretical, they don't have the same theoretical resources to draw on. So the well doesn't run as deep as it would. And I think that will probably limit what they're able to say. Because if they wanted, you know, if they had, um, if they had deeper theoretical resources, they wouldn't be as conservative as they are, I suspect. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, it's like a game of telephone where like the the, the references are, are bastardized every like half generation or generation. They become like, you know, quotes or like examples, but nobody actually digs that deep. Um, so I think I think on some level that that might answer why there's been no kind of uh expansion or improvement of the new left critiques of, of the 60s and 70s. Um, because the kind of the the ref people are making kind of revivalist referential yeah. arguments, yeah. So, but actually, not actually reading the source material. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and I I guess that so the idea if, if they are kind of revivalist and they're going back to those old wells and not really even kind of looking at the perhaps the theoretical background there. Maybe there's a question here about what the political limitations of at least some of these kind of lines of critique are i guess so one one sort of skeptical question here would be whether somebody who um is critical of i guess radical liberalism as as it's often packaged um the extent to which that that critique necessarily leads to a defense of more traditional cultural forms so for example the family um i mean is, is there a way to I, yeah may, maybe just to throw that question to you, Anna. I mean, do you think it's do you think it necessarily follows that for, from this critique that there's a kind of that there has to be an endorsement of the things that have been slipping away or that 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 are lost, um, as we talked about earlier? I'm sorry. What's the question again? Does there yeah, have I to be an endorsement of old well, traditions? I, I guess I didn't. To... I didn't. I didn't put that all that clearly. I guess the question is: so cultural, culturally conservative criticism or kind of social conservatism on the left. I mean, is this necessarily, this critique of radical liberalism committed to defending the family? You know, if you def if you attack the people who attack the, the family, are you, are you committed to defending it? I That's a good question that I, I myself, you know, I, I think can't even begin to answer, you know, on a personal level, right? Like you can... I think we see, I've seen at least, a lot of people kind of retrenching and living out these very traditional arrangements, getting married, having children. Um, but of course, that falls pitifully, woefully short as a political statement because it, it merely unlocks another cycle of the same kind of cultural wars. Um, 
And I, yeah. I think what we're essentially dealing with is like the kind of Nietzschean argument, like, the, or at least the way that I interpret it, right? The kind of God is dead argument. Um, God is dead. That doesn't mean that we <clears throat> get carte blanche, excuse me, to go sucking and fucking and engaging in all sorts of transgressive taboo behaviors. It means that we have to reconstruct a viable, um, comparable system of values that suits our present needs. But how to do I think that. that's sorry yeah. go ahead no I mean I think that's really to the point and I think you see a lot of examples today of you know people who would be otherwise you know culturally liberal who've grown up probably in liberal households with boomer parents who were m- certainly much more liberal than their parents had been uh, and who in fact end up going searching for um, for limits, you know, I mean, it's like that, it's like that Simpsons bit where, um, where, where they flash back to Ned Flanders' parents and, and they're like beatniks and they're going to the, to, they say to the, to the principal, like, we're, you know, we, we've, tri- we're, we're all, well, fuck, now I've forgotten the line. What is it? Uh, George, like, um, I, we're, we're all, we've tried every, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people going out with, with this world in which everything is, permitted um you know don't hurt other people don't be a too, don't be too much of an asshole but basically there's no more uh, substantial moral guidance than that um end up kind of looking for you know maybe some authority looking for daddy right uh and you find that we, I, i've even been struck with this with the lockdown you know the, the kind of enthusiasm for for uh, for the lockdown and for governments to take action because here finally is some someone saying no you know mm-hmm. uh in contrast to, you know, 9-11 happens, George Bush says, keep shopping, you know, keep enjoying yourselves. And that felt so, you know, morally insubstantial at, at the time. Um, but yet, you know, the, the president of the US got away with it. And nowadays, I, I don't know, I think that probably things have gone so far. There's been so much dissolution of old uh, of old moral boundaries and, and limitations and, and rules and whatnot that uh, people go in search of well, people go in search of new ones and end up only finding the old ones, probably. Well, I mean, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I can, speaking for myself, right, uh, my sister and I are far more socially conservative than our parents, who are these very kind of like hippie beatnik types. I remember my mother explicitly, you know, discouraging me from um, doing anything that could be seen as like a traditional gesture. She was very explicit, you know, about the fact that we shouldn't, aspire to get married um that having kids for us or grandkids for her was not kind of a primary goal and of course you end up rebelling i mean humans are a part of the reason that we don't have like a rejuvenated intellectual discourse is because you know we can let's face it we're all pretty kind of pitiful and limited creatures um but you you do see this kind of yearning i think i talked um on my podcast, Dasha and I talked to Glenn Greenwald about this, and he, you know, he's a leftist journalist who's spent um, his whole life kind of reporting on the erosion of civil liberties, and you know, fighting against it. And he said, "Well, frankly, with the pandemic, I find myself yearning for the state to take a more um, proactive, more authoritative role." That's, think, yeah, no, I that's, think, that's fascinating. I think that's actually right. Yeah. And I think that's the political, in fact, I think that's exactly the political position that's missing is the, um, the robust attachment to civil liberties and the willingness to allow, um, the willingness to allow the state to take on an authoritative role on the basis of, um, 
of social solidarity. And it's the combination of those two things that should be um, that should be mutually reinforcing um, that's lacking in um, any political vision and public discourse, I think, as well. Right. And I was going to say something along similar. Sorry, just to jump in, but yeah, something ahead. along similar lines is that this battle that we've been describing being played out between kind of a, a counterculture rebelling against something that's not there anymore uh, and the kind of new attempts to refine, you know, refine the family or, or be more traditional in some ways, both inhabit the private world. They're both kind of consumer decisions, whether you decide to be a radical liberal and have your have green hair and be polyamorous or be more traditionalist and have a family and kids and all the rest of it. These are things that both pertain to the private sphere. And it's precisely the lack of any public commitments and the death of the public sphere, which uh, is what really marks it and what, what makes it feel what makes both feel like such dead ends, right? Whichever, whether you take the kind of more conservative or the more radically liberal avenue, both are just consumer decisions rather than having public commitments, you know, attachments to a goal, whether it be, you know, communism or, uh, you know, merely defending civil liberties or some sort of uh, publicly facing, publicly oriented goals in life. Yeah, I mean, which is why, you know, whether you join like a polycule or, um end up having a nice little nuclear family in your like brownstone walk up it still always feels like cosplaying it feels like the simulation yeah. of a political gesture yeah that's right and i think you know actually uh to i think welbeck actually had a very interesting gloss on this um uh, uh was actually one of the few people who um i thought had a a correct and sympathetic analysis of submission, right? Which, if you guys remember, was published like on the day of the Charlie Hedbo massacres, not intentionally, and was widely denounced by kind of the liberal mainstream press as Islamophobic because it describes, right, the strategic alliance of the leftist party in France with the Muslim Brotherhood in a bid to outflank uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, nationalist right-wing front. Uh, and the result, of course, is that French society, uh, this kind of bastion of cultural protectionism, you could even say chauvinism, becomes radically Islamified practically overnight. Um, and, you know, he said what I was saying, that Welbeck's real enemy isn't Islam, which is what the liberals interpreted as being. It's it's kind of the um, moral failure of liberal consensus. As for, as for Islam, you know, I think Welbeck, as he's some kind of reactionary, right? I don't know that he's a traditional conservative. He has only a begrudging respect. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, I actually Teal, you could see like even talking to me how slim my reference points are, right? I'm like desperately trying to graft kind of a holistic theory. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Teal has a really wonderful line in the Straussian problem where he talks about, um, this kind of monumental conflict between the West and Islam, which I, I think is also kind of in hindsight now. Um, but he talks about how, um, you know, at, at the time George Bush was president, and, and even he is a guy who's a self-styled religious conservative, is not actually religious or conservative. He doesn't really have a dog in the fight. Um, he you know, pays lip service to also these like very liberal ma mantras. Like, you know, we don't have a problem with this religion, which is fundamentally beautiful and giving. We have a problem with those few people who are 
radical kind of Islamo-fascists. So he's not willing to take the fight, right, to the next level, like this clash of civilizations. So Interesting, guess- the Charlie Hebdo, um, looking back on it, um, the Charlie Hebdo massacre was actually an important moment um, for me. And I don't know if it was the same for any of you guys, actually, because... No, for, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, likewise. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much we've actually talked about it on the no, we haven't on really. the pod, but it was a genuinely important moment for me because I was um, so utterly filled with horror um, and outrage at the massacre itself, and then um, and then I was just you know I thought this you know I thought okay everyone now will rally around free speech. I thought everyone will um, will defend the idea of free speech and um, secularism and the right of people to mock um, to mock religion, and I was astounded um, to see uh, how how little of that happened, particularly among intellectuals and academics on the left in the UK um, and more widely, but particularly in Britain. Um, even among people that I know, I thought they would, you know, ju- even in a kind of limp, kind of liberal way, that they would um, concede that uh, the jihadists have gone too far this time. You know, killing people for doing cartoons is, um, you know, can't be kind of dressed up as uh, um, uh, kind of um, defending Palestinian settlements or attacking the American empire. There's no way in which, no conceivable way in which it can be glossed over. And yet it was. Um, and it's still like, so for me, it was really an important moment in fully appreciating the decline of the liberal left. Yeah. And, you know, on the other hand, you know, once you kind of denounce your enemy or your your opponent, you become just like them, uh, as Teal argues. But there is, I think, you know, the, the kind of grinding, limp discourse that we're faced with now has to do with this kind of fundamental lack of conviction or commitment because you know the fact of the matter uh is that convictions for the most part are rather unpleasant and unpalatable because they're exclusive they imply the exclusion of something else on some level yeah i so i think conviction is a is a word that was actually popular in the in the British new left in the the late 50s early 60s um but not to kind of go down that rabbit hole perhaps I guess because there's a more pressing question I think which is essentially so we've been talking about social conservatism on the left um and obviously whenever you're talking about cultural kind of concerns there's always the question well how does this relate to other sorts of politics specifically what's the role of class here is it possible for us to kind of go back to the kind of good old-fashioned class politics of the of post-war western europe you know what is actually or has that ship sailed what is actually the i guess this this strand of left thought as far as it exists what is what are its aims and what are its prospects um i i'm probably not the right person to ask about that um i i think there will be some sort of revisiting or reckoning now, especially with the failure of the Bernie campaign. But I think if we're talking about a return to class politics, um, that necessitates some like very kind of ruthless uh, and kind of uh, necessary self-critique on the part of the left which, you know, to my mind, has completely abandoned any of its class-based principles. Yeah, 
And they're incapable yeah. of that kind of degree of honesty and accountability, I think, as a whole. It's Which something, is scary, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I- and and I think that the culture stuff is actually uh, a cheap attempt at a shortcut, which I think won't work. Um, what I mean by that is that, you know, the left, as, you know, Piketty has demonstrated, most voters of the left, it, you know, the left has become, especially the center left, has become the party of uh, the educated. Um, and in certain cases, even the, ed- the educated and the relatively wealthy, uh, which is a complete turnaround um, and a complete inver- inversion of uh, the previous relationship which you, which obtained in the 1960s 70s and onwards um, so we, with that and you know the left feels itself distant from the working class it, it, the working class seems to be slipping through its fingers and going off and, and supporting populists or not voting at all or whatever it might be um, and people feel that there's a, a, a cultural gulf between the left and uh, and what should be its social base. And one way they try to do that, and you know, we mentioned the example of blue labor towards the beginning, uh, is to meet the working class halfway or to try to approach it through a kind of cultural traditionalism, because it feels that the reason that uh, broadly speaking, the masses aren't interested in what the left is selling is because uh, the left is seen as too culturally elitist, too metropolitan, and so on, and needs to become more, you know, for, quote unquote, authentic. Um, and for me, that's, that seems to be that seems to be a dead end, because first of all, if that's what is going to appeal to you, and you want to play those cultural politics, um, or rather, if you are going to um, make voting decisions based on those cultural politics, why not go for the real thing? Right. right. Why not? Why not vote for the traditionalist right? What is the left offering? The left set, set would respond. Presumably, the the advocates of, of this sort of approach would respond. Uh, but no. But we're against the market. You know, we're not we're not free marketeers, which is the stuff that is you know dissolving the basis for your life, uh, deindustrializing, precaritization, and so on, family breakdown and whatnot. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have a, a real communitarian response. Now, my thing is that the, the right is beginning to change, too, and the right itself is also going to start abandoning uh, free market neoliberalism. So I just, for me, that's a dead end, I think, for, from the left's perspective. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, what does it mean that a guy like Tucker Carlson is basically to the left of the rose emoji crowd on issues like unchecked individualism and unchecked immigration? Right. And, and you know, listen, I'm not... Um, singing Tucker's praises necessarily. I don't know. A lot of, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, he's just playing, a, he's just doing his bit. This is all manipulation. He's not sincere. But even so, he's kind of diagnosing a uh, reality that exists. And right now, I mean, the left has to be completely um, upfront, uh, kind of honest with itself uh, about whether it actually believes in democracy and democracy is referendum right popular referendum and we saw what happened in the uk when they had a popular referendum right so it turns out right that the working classes the rural population votes it kind of in contradiction with present day leftist imperatives uh, but you and then you have to ask, well, you know, whose whose failure is that? Like you take something like the Bernie mm. campaign, which which is like profoundly shockingly disappointing to <clears throat> a lot of people. I think that we could have saw it coming. Um, you know, Bernie came in this time around yeah. with a lot more energy, a lot more momentum, and he mm. softened his line on uh, on so many things that made him 
stronger. He started peddling this kind of like woke apologia. Um, he refused to really talk about the open borders issue, which he had previously deemed a, a Koch brothers proposal. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I cannot disagree. You cannot possibly dispute that he was rat fucked every step of the way by democratic political operatives and the mainstream liberal media who did not want him in office but you know now that's the game right but you know what do you attribute the bulk of his failure to i mean i think there's a there's a awesome lack of self-reflection within the bernie campaign itself yeah i yeah i think the absolutely it's going to be a a long post-mortem and hopefully an, an important one i guess the this is one of the the main contradictions or problems that the left is is facing at the moment as nancy fraser kind of outlines it you have recognition and you have redistribution or distribution you have kind of claims of identity and claims of 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 material of a material nature and mm-hmm. it's often um these two things have been in conflict recently yeah, i guess i think like um you know my last I, my last point would be to advocate for kind of independent thought i i encourage people to draw their own conclusions and to engage in um radical self-reflection you know a lot of people come and say to me like well why do you why do you hate aoc so much or why are you so tough on bernie when these people are on our side there are allies that's what these guys ask me all the time thank you anna it's nice to have it's nice to have an ally for a change too yeah but look exactly. i don't hate anybody but you have to be if the leftist project is to succeed you have to be more critical of aoc than tucker carlson absolutely because if she's on our side right yeah. you know to me it's a no-brainer and you know i noticed i, I said this um on another podcast recently i noticed um that the so-called uh, you know dissident left was ha- or sorry dissident right you can re-record that the guys on the dissident right on twitter were having a field day for weeks for months now because um they've been uh kind of talking about the they've been kind of critical of the bernie campaign um, from from day one and, and to them you know bernie was always like a plant or a psyop right who was created by this dnc to siphon to funnel money back into their coffers right by peddling this populist message i don't buy that you know my cynicism has a limit um but i what i do totally believe it and which is totally not far-fetched is that his upper management many of whom were former dnc people um in fact as i understand it were part of establishment democratic campaigns were probably receiving directives from some shadowy source that had nothing to do with the interests of the Bernie campaign. So I think my point is that there's a great deal of potential here now that Bernie's loss need not be a collective loss. Um, There has to be a figure who takes up Bernie's torch, who is more young and energetic and not afraid to go for the jugular. Unfortunately, it's not going to be me because I was not born in the United States. Um, But this is a great opportunity, but it demands self-critique and self-reflection, as somebody like Christopher Lash would have liked and encouraged. 
Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, indeed, that point that uh, kind of any green shoots of the left that we have now, we're not going to be best served by uh, trying to protect them from any critique, but to the contrary, submitting it to, to ruthless critique. So maybe we'll leave it there. Thanks, Anna, for, for joining us on this. Um, maybe we should do this again. Yeah, thanks for Thank having me. Thank you very me. much. All right, that's all for this episode. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and review the podcast. We're at BungaCast on social media. Coming up for patrons, we have a reading club on the PMC, our regular three article series, and responses to criticisms and comments. And free episodes coming out. We have David Edgerton, Reassessing British History, Krithika Varagur on Saudi Arabia's role in spreading Salafism, and more on the global role of the dollar, uh, the Balkans, and racist policing. Lots of stuff coming up. Thank you for listening. Catch you later. Bye-bye.